Mike says, I once flew from Glasgow to London for work. When we landed, the ground crew were unable to get the baggage door hold open, and it took over two hours. As you can imagine, there was considerable frustration and anger amongst the passengers, especially when the following flight arrived and those passengers left before we got our bags back. When I found the customer services to see if I could find out what was happening, there were already a queue of people with the same question. One man, obviously a very senior businessman, a few places in front of me, got really irate, and the staff, when he eventually reached the desk, he said, do you not know who I am? To which the young man at the desk responded, no, and I don't care. I don't have to take any abuse from anyone. He then got up and walked away. Well, that was perhaps an extreme case by the businessman, by the businessman of what you might call privileged behavior. Expecting as a right a better level of service or defense just because of who or what you are. It is frozen. It's something that we've come to expect from celebrities and the extremely rich. But on a larger scale, don't we as a society suffer with this too? With respect to poorer countries? And I'm sure you will have seen the same happen to some extent or other at some time. And in my experience, says Mike, it rarely ends well for the person with that attitude. So far in Paul's letter to the Romans, we have seen him arguing that everyone is justly under God's wrath because of our sin, are trying to put ourselves in God's rightful place and ignoring the maker's instructions with our lives. We have seen how he describes the immediate consequences of God's wrath as God gives us over to experience the consequences of our sinful desires. And how even apparently moral and upright people still fall short of God's standards. If you asked a Jew of Paul's time whether he agreed with Paul's diagnosis of the general human condition, he would probably be in full agreement. And he would also agree with Paul that his prognosis that humankind is going to face God's judgment and get the penalty that we earned as a consequence of our rebellion. The Jews, however, felt he would view them as differently. As God's chosen people, the people who have the law and the covenant with God, marked by circumcision, the Jews felt they were far better off than the Gentiles, and that they won't face judgment. In today's passage, Paul now challenges this viewpoint 
And remember, Paul knew all the arguments as a Jewish person that they would muster as before his conversion. He would have known them himself. Now you could at this point look at the people around you and decide that this is part of Paul's letter that isn't relevant to us. He's addressing a situation that we don't face. But before you settle down for a snooze, think about what Paul is actually addressing. The Jewish people saw themselves as having a special place in God's eyes. They were God's chosen people, the people from whom God had made a covenant, a sign of which was circumcision. They were the people to whom God had given the law. And they had a belief that this would protect them from God's judgment. The fact that God had judged and punished the people of Israel, not just once or twice, but many times during their history. For example, in Judges and through the exile, there seems to be things that have slipped their memory. Judaism had also largely lost its vision of their role as God's people. Something Paul starts to address at the beginning of chapter 3, before eventually returning to it in chapter 9. They had lost sight of the fact they were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. That they were to be an example of God's living and tell people about God. When God spoke to Israel at Mount Sinai, he said in Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. But you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Priests were those who instructed the people about God and interceded for the people before God. But if the whole nation of Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests, then what other people say were they supposed to instruct and intercede for? Well, who is left? The rest of the nation of the earth. At Sinai, Israel received more than the law of Moses. They received a mandate rooted in God's desire to see his revelation go out to all the families of the earth. God planned to establish a kingdom of priests so that the rest of the nations might learn who he is and come to worship him. Paul addresses his criticism to those who rely on the law, who know God's will from the scriptures, who think they are a beacon of hope and are able to instruct the young, both physically and spiritually. His charge is that, despite their knowledge and study of God's law, they don't obey it. Now, like any generalization, this doesn't mean every Jewish person who, that they didn't follow the law 
We know, for example, that some Jews did seek to bring, bring people to God as Jewish converts. Jesus mentioned this in Matthew 23. We also know that there were faithful Jews who trusted God, just as from the Gospels we know of Simeon, described in Luke 2, as a righteous and devout person, looking forward to the consolation of Israel and of the Holy Spirit that rested on him. Nathaniel, of whom Jesus said, It truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was described as a righteous man. And there are many more in the Bible, some of whom are listed in Hebrews 11. But even these would acknowledge that they did not and could not fully keep the law. So what Paul is addressing in this part of the letter is that those who rely on possession of the law, on having the covenants, on being circumcised, to put themselves right with God. Indeed, the Greek word Paul uses in 2.17 for rely suggests complacency in their reliance. The message version expresses it nicely as this. If you're brought up Jewish, don't assume that you can lean back in the arms of your religion and take it easy, feeling smug because you're an insider to God's revelation. A connoisseur of the best things of God, informed on the latest doctrine. Which brings us back to the question of why is it relevant to us here in Amesbury in the 21st century? Where Paul sees the Jews going wrong is that they rightly saw they had a special place as God's chosen people. But they saw it as a privileged position that gave them rights above the, over other people. You may have seen the parallels between how Paul describes society and behavior in Rome with present-day Western society. But look at the potential parallels between Paul's description of the Jews of his day and Christians today. We too have a privileged position. We have been saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through faith. We have a command to be witnesses to those around us. We are called to be a royal priesthood. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may, may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the way that God has chosen to reach the people who have not heard the good news of the gospel. People that don't know about Jesus and the salvation he offers and don't even know that they need salvation. So Paul's challenge to the Jews who had a misplaced confidence in their special place is also a challenge to us. 
Have we become complacent in our faith? Are we resting secure in our salvation, but not being obedient to Jesus' commands? Not changing the way we live? Paul questions whether the Jews are living by the law in verse 21 and 22. Are they applying the principles of the law or misusing them? If they are bore idols, and most Jews wouldn't even dream of going near a pagan temple, would they rob that same temple? If so, could only because of greed or lust for what the temple contained? And it seems that there was at least a perception that Jews would rob temples, as we can see from Acts 19 during the disturbance caused by Demetrius and the other silversmiths of Ephesus. After the crowd had recognized that Alexander was a Jew, they shouted him down. The town clerk pointed out that he had committed no crime. But you have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. Even today, spending time studying the Torah is an important thing for a strict Jew. But studying the point where you feel confident to pass on the knowledge that you have gathered is very different from reading scripture and act upon what you have found. This is obviously a challenge to anyone who teaches in a church, whether from a pulpit, Sunday school, Bible study group, or any other meeting. But it is also a challenge to each and every one of us, and in two ways. Firstly, are we spending time to read the Bible regularly and systematically, ideally daily? Do we join with others in study groups? And worship God together. And secondly, whether we study God's word individually or collectively, or just rely on its reading once a week in a church, and the teaching and the sermon, do we learn from it? Not just intellectual knowledge, but letting it be something that will change us, change our attitude our behavior, our speech. If not, we stand accused as justly those first century Jews. Verses 25 to 29 summarizes Paul's argument. It's not having the law. It is not physical signs like circumcision or baptism that makes you right with God. It is obedience to God's word and his commands. That doesn't mean to say that we are saved by our own actions, however. And Paul's argument, both up to this point and in the next part of this letter, make that clear. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We are saved by faith in Jesus. Our actions, however, are the proof that we really have been saved. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus also warned of the false teachers. In Matthew 7, he says, We will know their deeds by their fruit. can detect them by the way they act, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit. You need never confuse grapevines with those thorn bushes or figs with thistles. So also, by faith it, by itself, it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I by my works will show you my faith. Paul even wrote in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Just as the Jews could hear the words of the Torah and not live them out, we can hear the gospel, accept it intellectually, but not make it, but it not make any difference to our lives. This is not saving faith, as James pointed out. Even the demons have the knowledge and it terrifies them. A true believer has been made new by the Holy Spirit. And we cannot, must not, carry on living the same way as we used to. We are a new creation. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. If we do not show any change, if we continually live our lives blatantly full of sin, we open ourselves up to rightly being accused of hypocrisy. We by our behavior dishonor God's name. Just as Paul wrote to the first century Jews. This whole chain of logic, however, leads to an obvious question. If being Jewish did not save anyone from God's wrath and judgment, what is the point of being Jewish? Paul starts to answer this in verse 2, but sidetracks 
to do with some critical questions. Firstly, he emphasizes that just because some Jews were unfaithful, it didn't make God unfaithful. God does and will uphold his covenant with Israel. And he has been seen to do this throughout history. Even when God brought judgment on Israel, he has always preserved a remnant, the faithful ones who are trusting in him. Some people suggested that continuing to sin allowed God's grace to be shown even more. So being judged for that sin was unjust. Paul refutes this here in verse 5 to 8. But he deals with it more in Romans 5 and 6. God is faithful to his word. And that includes his condemnation and judgment against sin. But Paul's expansion in the, later, in the later chapter is that when we became Christians, we died to sin so that we no longer are slaves to sin, but free in Christ. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. And we might no longer be enslaved to sin, but whoever has died is freed from sin. Paul then sums up his argument to date in verse 9. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, are under the power of sin. In that respect, there is no advantage of being a Jew. And he backs it up with a number of verses from the Old Testament that makes the point that no one is righteous. And of course, these verses applied as much to the Jews as to the Gentiles. The verses Paul select refer to throats, tongue, lips, mouths, feet, and eyes, making the point that sin affects all our activities, all our thoughts, all our words, and all our actions. The Israelites were entrusted with the word of God, not just the law, but of the whole Old Testament. Being entrusted with something means it is not for you. But you take custody of it for someone else, and that you are responsible to deliver it to them. But as custodians of the law, the Jewish people had the advantage being made aware of their sin. This looks back to Paul's argument in chapter 1. Now the Gentiles had some knowledge of God through the created word, through the created world, sorry, but not the greater revelation, revelation of God that he gave to the Jews. But it is not possible for anyone to obey the law because of our sinful natures. It is, however, when we are made conscious of our sin that we know that we need to be rescued, that we see our need of salvation. That was the advantage that having the law gave to the Jewish people. And today, we as Christians have
have an even better advantage because we have the gospel, the full revelation of God and his plan to save us that came through Jesus. But we are entrusted with that gospel and therefore have the responsibility to pass it on. Indeed, it is an explicit command to us from Jesus. We must show the world the love of God, not just in our words, but more importantly, in our lives. We must be equipped and ready to explain our hope, the salvation that is available to those who trust Jesus and make him as their Lord. And we earn that right by the way people see our lives as different, reflecting our Lord. In your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. The need of those around us is just as great as it was in Paul's time. Our society is broken. People are suffering and despairing because of the circumstances and the worries of the world caused by sin. People, all people, no matter how good they think they are, are blind to their spiritual situation and need the thing that Paul has been spanning out in the first three chapters of Romans. But we have the answer in Jesus and the new life he gives. Our mission as individuals and as a church is to spread the good news to be witnesses for our Lord. Let us pray that he will empower us to fulfill that calling wherever God puts us. And that his spirit will go before us to prepare the way for the people we speak to. Amen.